Welcome and thanks for joining us on the Disciples Church Podcast. My name is Jonathan Mosier and it is my honor to get to open up God's Word with you today. Our reading today is from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. This week I spent some time thinking about the unique season that the last few months have been. If you remember back to what feels like years ago for me, uh, we went into this season with the understanding that we'd be apart for about three to five weeks. And now here we sit about 11 weeks later. And these past few months have been challenging in many ways. Uh, We're not used to being confined to our homes. We're not used to having the freedom to move about removed. We're, We're used to seeing friends and loved ones and going to restaurants or going out to movies or spending time with those that we care about. Even simple things like getting a haircut. I mean, the last time I wore a baseball cap this often, I was probably 14 years old. But near the top of the list of things that I've missed is the gathering together of God's people. So while we're thankful for technology that allows us to easily communicate, we cannot wait to see you all again. We can't wait to worship with you, to open the word with you, and I'm thrilled that the limitations we've faced are beginning to loosen. But one of the unique blessings for my family in this season has been the necessary change in how we approach worship together. So our Sunday mornings have typically looked like this. We'll get the kids together and we'll read a story from their children's Bible. And that ends with some practical questions about what we learned uh, about the gospel through those stories. And so we'll begin to have some conversations around those things and ask my sons questions and they'll begin to respond and ask questions of their own. And then we'll sing some songs together and we'll pray with them. And what I've loved is that the more that time in the word became habitual for us, the more interested and engaged and thoughtful our boys became. I mean, some of the insights that they offered and some of the questions that they asked were really profound. And so we just delighted in seeing the Holy Spirit pique their interest in this last season. This time of worship at home has given Jessica and me a renewed appreciation for the role of family devotions and time in the Word. And it's also highlighted the role that we have as parents It's reminded us that the responsibility that God has given us is not to be the agent of change in their lives, but to, in the words of one pastor, place the kindling of the gospel around their hearts and pray for the Spirit to set it ablaze. This season has been a reminder for us that we are utterly dependent on God to do what he alone can do. And the psalm we're going to look at today uses parenting as one illustration of how our Christian hope is really rooted in humble dependence rather than self-assured independence. But let me encourage you, regardless of your stage in life, to give your attention to this passage because the truth it contains is for everyone. It's not just for parents. Psalm 127 is smack in the middle of a portion of scripture called the Songs of Ascent. These songs are made up of Psalm 120 through 134, and they were of special significance to the Hebrew people. 
See, Jerusalem was a city that was set up on a hill. And so as God's people would come to Jerusalem for festivals and observances at least three times a year, they would sing these songs repeatedly on their way up the path. Some historians even believe that the Levites would sing these 15 psalms as they ascended the 15 steps to serve in the temple. These psalms were really intended for meditation. Now, we talked about meditation a bit several weeks ago, but we always need to clarify what we mean by that term because of its significance in our culture. See, the aim of broadly spiritual Eastern meditation is to get beyond the personal. It's to have your consciousness transformed from individual to cosmic. It's the reason it's called transcendental. It's the idea that you're transcending, that you're climbing a ladder, you're moving into another consciousness. And the way that people attempt to do this is primarily by focusing on nothing, by emptying the mind to reach that transcendental state. But the aim of Eastern meditation and Christian meditation are very different. The aim of Christian meditation is to focus ever more deeply on the person of God. So instead of emptying the mind, we're filling the mind. And because all of God's attributes find their perfection in him, the Christian can meditate rightly on the love of God, the holiness of God, the grace of God, because God is the perfect personification of those characteristics. And by focusing on his attributes and by focusing on his person, We are diving ever more deeply into the nature of God himself. We can never plumb the depths of his person. The practice of meditation that we see in scripture, such as these songs, will be carried on into eternity for those who know God. Because in eternity, we will spend infinite days knowing and praising him further. And these songs of ascent range in theme. Some are historical remembrances of God's provision. Some are prayers of repentance. Others are reminders of the very character of God. And still others are practical prayers of blessing. And Psalm 127 falls into that last practical category. As you look at the text, notice the practicality of what the psalmist writes, because whether the psalmist is being literal or metaphorical, there's truth to be gleaned in these words. So Solomon, who penned this psalm, writes about everything from new construction to physical safety in threatening times to the need for deep physical rest and the gift of family. He speaks to the everyday concerns of modern America just as effectively as he did to the needs of ancient Israel. And you can look down each one of these illustrations and find that not much has changed in the 3,000 years since this was written. The names and places may have changed, but the concerns and motivations of individual people have not. So look how he begins in verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So Solomon begins by speaking to the vanity, the emptiness of our pursuits and pleasures in this life if we pursue them without God. And we've all had this experience in some way or another. So let me illustrate it like this. I remember many years ago, Jessica and I bought a new car. Now, it wasn't a fancy car, but it was new to us and we were thankful for it. We enjoyed it. And I remember being at the video store, which to some of you immediately makes me sound older than I am. But understand, before streaming video and Netflix, if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to physically drive to an actual building walk through the aisles and pick out a movie, and then drive home to watch it. 
And as if that wasn't enough, if you go back a few more years from there when we were still using VHS tapes, uh, you actually had to physically rewind the videotape before you took it back to the store. And if you didn't, they'd ding you for an extra charge. It was horrible. Now, I can only imagine that to my children, this is going to sound like the equivalent of when I was a kid, I had to walk to school in the snow uphill both ways. But regardless of all that, I was at the video store, and while I was there, somebody put a substantial dent in the driver's side door of my car. And suddenly, rather than enjoying and being thankful for this new vehicle, all I could see was that dent. Now, in retrospect, that person did me a favor because many years and many dents later, I can park with impunity and not worry about whether or not someone dings my car. But what that story illustrates is the futility of living for things. And whether it's a new car or a better house or the promotion that you've been wanting at work, the psalmist is saying that all of your earthly pursuits, divorced from the primary and eternal pursuit of God, are futile. See, it's easy for Christians to look around at the world around us, to look at those who don't fear God, and to begin to wonder why it is that they're successful. Why does life maybe even seem easy for them? Why are things going their way? But I want you to notice what Solomon says, because he does not say that without God you won't be successful in your earthly pursuits. What he says is that without God, your earthly pursuits are meaningless. Your best efforts at purpose and fulfillment, without a recognition of the God who created you and to whom you're accountable, are just things that are going to fade and crumble. And you can read the book of Ecclesiastes, which Solomon also wrote, if you want to learn more about that. But along the same lines, he continues writing and he says, Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. If we've learned anything in this season, it's that life is full of unknowns. And listen, it's good and right to want to be watchful and wise about looming potential threats. But the reminder of this text is that in life, you can do all the right things, you can take all the right precautions, but without a realization that your life and well-being rest in the hands of a benevolent and omnipotent God, you will end up worrying in vain. I mean, just think briefly about the last 20 years in the United States. I mean, do you remember the fear that gripped the nation after 9-11? People were afraid to fly. They were afraid of ongoing attacks. There were all sorts of economic fears. There was speculation that downtown real estate in cities like New York was going to be abandoned because who wanted to rent space in a high-rise anymore? And in the time since, we've had wars and foreign interventions, we've had crime and economic downturns, we've had political upheaval, and now pandemics. And I cite all of that not to be a killjoy about our future, nor to be Pollyannish about how everything is going to actually work out, but rather to say, for the one who believes in God, there can be a peace that surpasses understanding, because we know that ultimately it is by his power and generous watch care that our lives are held. And when I think about this, I can't help but think about Job. After tragedy befell his life, Job said this, God spreads out the skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. 
He covers the face of the full moon, spreading his clouds over it. He marks out the horizon on the face of the waters for a boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of the heavens quake, aghast at his rebuke. By his power he churned up the sea, by his breath the skies became fair, and these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? What Job is saying is, in all of the declaration of God's power that we see in nature all around us, as we look into space, as we look into the oceans, as we look into nature itself, and we see the magnitude and the intensity of the power of God on display, what Job is saying is, we're only seeing a glimpse of the actual power of God. See, it is that powerful God who not only stands above his creation, but also cares intimately for it. That's what David wrote about in Psalm 56 when he said, You have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in a bottle. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? That the very same powerful God is right here with us in the midst of every fear and every worry and every sleepless moment. And he's reminding you of his love and power. So God's truth, presence, and care are integral to the way that we live. And all of this finally leads Solomon to make this application, beginning in verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. See, this is a reminder to the believing parent that children are a gift from the Lord. That they're an inheritance entrusted to parents by God. And this is important for us to keep in mind because our perspective and our attitude towards our children changes all the time. I think there are two primary temptations in front of parents as we think about children. The first temptation is to view our children as little gods. And all kinds of parents try to find their meaning and their purpose in their children. They try to live vicariously through their children. They try to give everything to their children. And the parent's ego and worth can rise and fall with the success or the outcome of their children's lives. And it leads parents either to pride or despair. Everything else in their life becomes negotiable. Everything else, in fact, becomes dispensable. And the kids ultimately hold the authority in those households. But the second temptation is for parents to view their kids not as gods, but as a burden. And that mentality is propagated by all sorts of media. It's the idea that the best life you can live is to be independent, unfettered by the responsibility of children. That children are a problem to be managed rather than a gift to be cared for. But for Christian parents, I wonder how a right understanding of this text might change our perspective, especially in those moments of frustration or disappointment. I mean, do we think of children as both a gift and a responsibility? 
Now understand, I say all of this not as an expert, but as a dad who's trying to figure these things out. Because here's what I know to be true. For parents, your relationship with your child will have an outsized effect on every belief and relationship that your child will have. Positively or negatively, your relationship with them shapes and forms their opinions, their values, and their approach to every other relationship. So the question that we then need to ask is this, what story are you telling your child about who they are and about who God is? So think of it this way. This psalm, as part of the Songs of Ascent, would have been sung repetitively as the children of God walked the path to Jerusalem three times each year. And as families and communities walked that path, they would have sung together, fathers, mothers, and children alike, all singing these words in unison. And imagine what it must have been like to be a child singing these words alongside your parents. You're hearing your father sing about the greatness of God, about his protection and provision for his people. You're hearing your mother sing about God's love and care, how he's always taken care of them in the past. And you're joining in as they sing about the fact that you, as their child, are a treasured gift from God. And you're doing all of this as you travel together to worship God at the temple. Imagine how formative that must have been. Imagine the sense of identity and community that would have been shaped in that child. As they began to understand a mutual recognition of God's grace generation after generation. So what story is your life communicating about your God? Our kids desperately need to see how the relationship with God shapes us. And I think there are at least three examples that we could consider. First, children need to see how your relationship with God shapes your marriage. At different points in time, I've counseled with individuals who've said things like, well, I may not be a great husband, but I am a great dad. But the problem with a statement like that is it ignores the fact that your children learn how to be a spouse from you. In your interactions one with another, you are teaching and training your children on what to look for in a spouse, how to interact with a spouse, how to treat one another, how to love one another. Do your kids see that you love your husband or your wife? Do they see that you value your spouse? Do they see that you respect them, that you sacrifice for them? Or to the extent that you've handled things poorly, do they see a humble confession and repentance? Do they see you leaning on God for your hope? Second, children need to see how your relationship with God shapes your work. I think it's instructive that Solomon writes this portion about children immediately on the heels of instruction regarding the use of time. Look what he says in verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. He's describing someone here who gets up early to work and who stays out late, always scrapping and pressing to gain a little bit more, living this anxiety-ridden life. And as it relates to parenting, there are all kinds of reasons that a parent might do this. I mean, parents always want to give their children more than they had. 
They want their children to have every opportunity and every experience, but often in their desire to provide things, parents neglect the greatest gift they could offer their children, relationship. Does your use of time and your approach to work communicate to your children that you view them as a gift and a responsibility rather than viewing them as a god or a burden? And third, children need to see how your relationship with God affects your spiritual walk. Do your children even have sight into your relationship with God? Do your children see a parent who is daily, desperately reliant on God? See, the responsibility of the parent is not just to teach about God in the abstract. The responsibility is to model and demonstrate the relationship that they have with God and then reinforce that modeling with teaching and training. And so, as Solomon points out, parents do that by prioritizing their time by loving and enjoying their children. And in doing so, they are imperfectly but beautifully showing what it looks like to be loved by God. I remember hearing a warning several years ago that stuck in my brain. There was an interview between two people and they were talking about generational Christianity. What does it look like when Christianity is passed down from one generation to another? And so they gave several positive examples of that and demonstrations of how particular communities or particular families had seen this amazing demonstration of God's grace and children grasping the gospel at an early age. But then they also talked about the flip side of that. That there were some families where over generations the children tended to abandon the faith. And so the individual who was being interviewed said this. He said, too often what happens is that the first generation discovers the gospel, the second generation assumes the gospel, and the third generation rejects the gospel. See, that's why it's so important that we never move beyond the gospel that we never begin to assume it, but that we constantly come back to it and remind and rediscover its truths. See, when parents begin to divorce their faith from their daily life and compartmentalize their worship to an hour or two on a Sunday morning, they are training their children inadvertently that God is just another category of obligation in their life. So as an aside, let me just throw out this thought. There may be some who are listening to this and are saying, well, I've blown it. My life didn't match up to the training that I gave my children. Work was a bigger priority for me than it ought to have been. I didn't use my time well. I didn't view my relationships well. And my encouragement to you is to remember the context and the author of this passage. This text is written by Solomon. A man who, by all accounts and by his own confession in the book of Ecclesiastes, had pursued pleasure and satisfaction in all the wrong things. And yet God uses his experience and the wisdom he gained from it to pen this psalm that's been sung for millennia. Your children don't need a perfect parent. What they need is a parent who has a perfect God. And fortunately, you have a God who loves your children even more than you do. And this is where it begins to speak to the broader role of the church. Because certainly there are many people listening whose children have long since been out of the home. There are some listening who don't have children. There are some listening who are not married. 
And so the question becomes this, how then does all of this affect me? Well, it may affect you because you may find yourself in a position in life where once again, you're in a role of influence and training. But the truth is, as Christians, we belong to two families. We have our family of origin, the family we were born into, the family we were raised by and are related to by blood. But we're also part of the family of God. We're part of a family that we're related to through Jesus' blood. And in the family of God, everyone has a role. I think back on my own life and I think back about some of the people who had a profound impact on me. I think about those who invested in me and cared for me and were willing to push me. I'm so thankful for God's grace in bringing those individuals into my life. And he did so almost exclusively through the church. And now as a dad of three young kids, I'm so incredibly grateful for the people who not only take an interest in my spiritual well-being, but also in the well-being of my children. It brings my heart so much joy to see my children run to and embrace those people that are my friends, to see that they view those individuals as part of their extended family. See, the Christian community is vital to the development of Christian identity. And this text, viewed as a whole, stands as a reminder that God is integral to every part of our life. From our work, to our fears, to our time, to our families. That every effort we make is worthless unless it's done to God and blessed by him. And that is a comforting reminder. So Disciples Church, let's be a community that communicates through our work and our use of time, through our view of the children in our midst, and through the placing of our fears on the object of our hope, that we recognize and depend on the gracious God of the Bible. Like the Israelites, let's meditate on God's goodness and faithfulness, desiring to raise up a generation who believe in the grace of God because they've seen us model a life of dependence. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the passages that are worthy of meditation and reflection. We thank you for the instruction that you give us to place you at the center of our lives, that you are not an add-on or an obligation, but that you bring meaning and blessing to our lives as we pursue you and are faithful to the things to which you've called us. We thank you for the gift of community and the role that you've given each of us in the spiritual nurturing of the next generation. And we also thank you that you redeem the brokenness of our lives to demonstrate your compassion and grace. So cause us to depend on you fully and find our rest in you. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory for what you do. And it's in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. Blessings to you all throughout the remainder of this week. And Lord willing, we'll see you very soon.